Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Uh, happy to be talking about one of the craziest things I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Oh, yeah. Buckle up, folks. We got a, a fun one today. We've also got a guest with us today. Joining us this week is Josh White. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Josh, you want to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about the work that you do in Georgia politics and a little bit about yourself? I've been working in Georgia politics since uh, 2001 when I was the guy who followed around Sonny Perdue with a a video camera trying to catch him saying something stupid. Um, Too bad for us. He waited until he was elected governor. And Mm -hmm. I've been working in Georgia politics since then. Um, But for the past decade or so, I've been working mostly as a fundraiser and I work, work mostly with like state house, state senate and local candidates here in Georgia. Well, I'm sure the races you're working on, there's a lot of excitement around those with the possibility that Democrats could take the, the state house this cycle. Uh, yes, I've got a number of the, uh, the folks who are running for the state house who are in those targeted 16 uh, plus seats that we have that we're looking at there and then a couple to protect seats as well. All right. So we are going to dive right in today. Uh, no surprise to our listeners. We are going to talk about a very, very memorable debate on Tuesday night. It was uh, a shit show describing it charitably. Um, I want to start first just with y'all's general reactions. You know, we've talked about debates before. And if you're a listener of this show or other politics podcasts, you kind of know that candidates enter these things typically with some sort of strategy in mind. And and these debates, they're not typically, you know, a a normal debate candidates enter trying to accomplish something that that would serve the ends of their campaign. So Josh, let's start with you and just get your thoughts on what kind of strategy do you think either President Trump or former Vice President Biden was trying to execute at the debate on Tuesday night? And and how well do you think they were at accomplishing their goals? Well, I mean, I think the the first thing to note is that the the president definitely telegraphed what they were going to do way ahead of time. If you think about to the couple of weeks leading up to the debate, I don't think a single day went by where you didn't have someone questioning the vice president's mental acuity or his ability to debate. I mean, I think even Giuliani came out the day before the day of the debate and said he thought that I can't remember how he said it. He said some pretty you know nasty things about Biden and his ability to do it. Um, I think they were trying to set it up. Um, and I think we saw what the president then did in that debate with his constant interrupting. I mean, it really can't call it a debate at all. I mean, it was just interrupting and just speaking over and being a complete whack job really uh, was meant to throw Biden off base and to make him mess up. Right. And, and, and with Biden, with his stutter as someone who is, you know, that was, I think a, a definite plan that the president had was trying to mess that up. And I don't think you've heard much about Biden as gas since the, the debate. I mean, it's kind of going off the radar right there. And I think the vice president's mo- main way of handling that, I mean, Yes, he probably could have expected that. And I'll say, first, I'll say this. When I first finished the debate, I was kind of upset at, at Joe. I was like, I, can't, I thought he should have been a little bit, should have told him to shut up a few more times or a little bit more forcefully or done that right there. But, you know, that was my initial, you know, five minutes after it thing. But as I thought back on it, you know, that wouldn't have done anyone any good. It wouldn't have solved the problem. And that's probably what the, the, the president wanted. And I think that the strategy of, of, of selectively, 
um, pushing back on the president when he was acting his craziest and trying to focus on the, 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 the talking directly to the voters was effective. And I think that the I think most voters are going to come out on top and say that that Biden won that first uh, debate. Luke, what did you think about how Biden handled himself as as the president was constantly interjecting? And and you, do you think that, you know, despite the fact that that Biden seemed to have a strategy, the president really controlled sort of what people's takeaway from the debate was the fact that it was a total shit show. So even if Biden handled himself well, do you think that the president's strategy of turning the thing into a shit show was effective, you know, regardless of what Biden did? So I think we don't really know what Biden's strategy was, was just because of what you just laid out there that like we didn't really get to see what his actual strategy was. I think a lot of people quite rightfully have said this debate was terrible. You know, you referred to it as a shit show, dumpster fire, you know, the worst debate ever. Like I've heard all these things. And it's funny because to me, this is actually one of the best debates ever. Because while at least for like my own sensibilities, like my ideal debate is honestly like debates like Obama and um, Mitt Romney had because I thought they were both decent human beings who respected the hell out of each other, even though they had very deep disagreements and they talked on policy in like a really deep insightful way. And it's like, if you were trying to like put in a like capsule to show people like, this is what these two parties believe, like that would be what you would want to show them. Right. Like if you're like a committee trying to pick like, what's the best version of this, that's what you want to pick. Right. And I think part of the, and I don't think that particular debate falls into this trap a lot, but, you know, like the Al Gore, George Bush debates and, you know, the John Kerry one, like, and, and a lot of debates really since the like 80s, I would think got to this place where everyone's just doing lines and everyone's like doing stump speeches to the camera and, and every once in a while they will actually like talk to their opponent. Uh, and, and that was not what this debate was. Uh, this debate was too old men arguing at each other. But I think the the great thing about that was the fact that you actually got to see exactly who these two, two guys were in a very, very clear way. And I think that was actually, it's so funny to me because, and I promise Kyle, I am actually coming around to answering your question. It's going to happen. Um, the, the thing I find so funny is like, I know exactly why Trump did this strategy. And it is because he for months was like Joe Biden. And like, you know, to summarize months of, Trump talking points. Joe Biden is senile and old, but also controlled by the left. And he's going to just piss in his pants because he's an old man who can't say anything. And what Trump came to realize like hours probably before the debate is like, oh, like he's not going to actually piss his pants. He's going to say things and he's going to say them articulately. And like, I can't let him do that. And so that's why I have to keep interrupting him and stuff. And Joe Biden's strategy in response to that, I feel like he actually kind of threw out whatever playbook they had. And he realized two things that were very important. One, Trump was not going to let him do any of his talking points for very long. So he needed to be short and quick and just look at the camera and talk directly to voters and ignore him. And when he did those in those moments, that was his best stuff. And then the other thing I think that happened is Trump actually, by being an asshole and by like doing what he was doing, he revealed both himself, but also Biden, because Biden's strongest moments, and I'm sure we'll get into this, were the moments where I feel like he had not planned to say the things he said, but when he said them, you just got such a feeling for who Joe Biden is as a human being that like Trump's bullying actually backfired. Uh, in a huge way because of that. Well, and that I think gets at 
I, I think you're right that it it backfired because the thing that people like about Joe Biden is that he is a human being and that he is relatable. It's a low bar. <laughs> it's it's a low bar, but like nobody expects him to be the the leftist leader of Antifa. Nobody expects him to be a policy wonk. Like his whole political brand is based on just like the guy from Scranton that he is. And then Trump just set him up to do those things and to, and to lean into the way in which Biden has positioned himself for this moment in our politics, where in a lot of ways, what Biden is offering is a political figure who is healing, who is compassionate, who is somebody you can care about. And he was able to just demonstrate that by the way in which he talked about both of his sons, but particularly Hunter and um, the way in which he was teed up to, you know, basically bring the debate about COVID-19 down to you at home who maybe lost somebody in your own family or maybe know somebody who lost somebody and who is dealing with tragedy in your own life right now, all because of the president's failures. And like, why? I mean, I go back and forth on how much of like, this was a strategy that Trump had and how much it is just his instinct to react in this way. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, but it, it just walks right into this trap that lets Biden just lean into everything that his campaign is about. Well, I, I, I have to agree with what you just said, but I think that there's one thing about the thing about whether or not it's effective or not was that if you are a suburban woman or an undecided voter, this didn't appeal to you at all. Right. And I think that for a lot of politicians, we they all strive for that moment where they can have that connection with the voter. Right. And I think we saw like Biden had one of those moments in there talking about his son. Right. Like that was a, that was, that was a connection moment where, where people who could feel what he was feeling and have the same thought right there, right there. He had that moment where he said in Salala back to the, to the president. Right. And that was a connection moment with voters right there. I can't think of a single thing during the debate where the president connected with voters in any way that on a personal level where they would have felt that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Josh, because like what I think is like the most fascinating thing about this debate is that like, you know, and, and uh, you know, David Axelrod and a lot of people around Obama have told this story a lot regarding debates is, you know, he had this great line that's like, these things aren't on the level, are they? Because like to be successful in a debate, you're not actually debating your opponent. You are trying to, just like you said, like make a connection with the voters and like you know, say something that will resonate to them. And the thing I just find so fascinating is that like Trump, for all his ability to like read like what is good marketing and like what is a good way to like be on TV, because he is, he is, you know, everyone talks about his Twitter, but he's good on TV as well. I mean, just his misreading about like debates because he was trying to debate Joe Biden. <laughs> like, that was his goal. His goal was to defeat Joe Biden in a debate. And, like, for some reason, that just feels so strange to me that that was how he was approaching this, because that's really not what you should be doing. You should be trying to engage your audience, which is usually what he's doing. And so I just found that so bizarre that he was spending so much time <laughs> debating Joe Biden rather than like saying his crazy things to his audience. Cause I even feel like during his answers, even when Chris Wallace would like throw him a layup of like, Hey, talk to voters. He'd be like, no, nah, I'm going to keep talking to Joe Biden. <laughs> it is amusing. This is the one debate where he gets the, 
the journalist from Fox, and he just blows the layups. Like nobody else is going to give that to him. And even even this has been said by multiple people, but even managed to piss off Chris Wallace of all people. Yeah, and like Chris Wallace is pretty inflappable. I mean, like he, you know, because like a lot of people have been hard on him, and I think yeah, he sure he could have done better. But like I don't really think any actual human being under those circumstances would have done much better. And at least for me, the thing that I was really worried about, especially like when the, within the first five minutes of the debate was that like, he was just going to act like this was one normal or two that like both of them were being equally bad. And like, he just didn't like by the end of it, he was like, Mr. President, you're ruining this debate. <laughs> like he didn't say that, but he basically did. Um, and like, he was just, he was so, so frustrated. Cause I think, um, he really, like, if there are a few journalists that could have like elicited a good debate from both of them. And I really think he could have, but Trump just firebombed uh, that, that, that possibility in a real way. So the one moment, you know, so, so much of what people remember about debates is actually a function of which moments make it out into the coverage in cable news and in, in all kinds of media, the, the clips that get passed around on social media, the one moment that seemed to have that quality for the president was when he declined to condemn the the Proud Boys white supremacist organization. And, and when he responded in this truly bizarre way of telling them to stand back and stand by, um, first, I just want to give y'all each a chance to react to that comment. It was, to me, it was shocking in the moment. What did, what did you think of that, Josh? I, I was a little bit surprised that the president was able to even utter those words, not because they were supportive of the Proud Boys, but they actually sounded like something kind of coherent, like he was trying to signal to them. Like, I don't understand what that was supposed to to come from. Like, it was either something that he had practiced beforehand or, or, or someone had said to him or he was just repeating. I mean, I thought there was something strange about that phraseology personally. Um, beyond that, I mean, it's, 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 it's disgusting as we all, we all can say it is. And, you know, every single chance they've given the, the president to denounce, you know, racism, white supremacy, anything that comes out there, he always takes, you know, he always, quote unquote takes a knee on it right so like that's 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 what we expect from him and, and i i don't know if that is going to have i don't know how much effect that's going to have on the election i i feel like for me and for a lot of folks it's it's just par for the course um and i don't know that that anyone who is that would be there's many people who moved by that issue right now truthfully yeah so for me about the debate overall like I got a surprisingly amount of questions from people about how to vote <laughs> and how to request absentee ballots during that debate. Um, so I, I'm guessing that's not great for the president. But on that specific one, like I was watching it with my wife and we were both like, he's not going to do it. Because like there was that one point where like they were like, OK, like condemn white supremacy. And then, you know, it's like, all right, go condemn them. And like both basically like both Chris Wallace <laughs> And Joe Biden were like, all right, do it. Like, okay, let's condemn some white supremacy. And then, he, you know, Trump had that moment where he's like, what do you want me to do? And then like, I just watching Trump's face in that moment was like watching that meme of someone doing like really complex math equations. And just, just because I feel like Trump is such a great marketer. And I, I feel like he probably in the moment did say it because 
it was so clear to me he was trying to thread a needle and that needle was say something that makes people think i you know condemned white supremacy but whatever you do donald do not actually condemn white supremacy and sing, send a subtle signal to these folks that i am actually still with them and want them to do things for me and he he weighed really heavily on that back part <laughs> because he thought stand you know stand back was enough but then stand by just like was like oh oh no he he did not condemn white supremacy if anything he endorsed it slash recruited them yeah i was surprised he didn't say stay tuned as well um (laughs) i am interested though in what this means for for candidates further down the ballot i mean i think people who do not like the president they will read the worst into what he was trying to say and people who strongly back the president will say that stand back was a full condemnation of white supremacy and you're being unfair to him. But the fact that this, you know, and then I think people in the middle, they, well, they may be kind of mixed, but the fact that this was the moment that got pulled out and was talked about so much. I mean, I watched a little bit of the cable reaction right after, and this was all they were talking about. This is just another one of those instances where the president needed to gain some positive yardage and he just whiffed. And now we're talking about whether or not he really did condemn white supremacy. Yeah. For me, I always go back to the thing that made Joe Biden run in this race, which is Charlottesville and, you know, good people on both sides. Like people forget that, like, not only was that a terrible moment for the presidency and for Donald, like it was a terrible moment for Donald Trump. Like it's one of the few times where he got below his like steady 43, 44%. Like it's, it's one of the few times that he dipped even lower than his already low poll numbers. And when you're Donald Trump, like you, you didn't need this debate to be a drawl or like a rain, you know, like a rain delay, you know, uh, drawl. Like you need this to be an unambiguous win where even people on MSNBC are like, yeah, Trump won that. And he, he got some good hits in. And like, it's so funny to me because like the expectations were pretty low for Biden, I feel, but I feel like they were honestly lower for Trump, even though people weren't actually saying that, like subconsciously, my expectations for him were really low. And had he just done his like boring, you know, like sniffly debate they had with Hillary and just like been normal, like people probably would have said he won, but he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. I don't, you know, for whatever reason, he could not do it. And so I, I think that makes it a loss because if you're not convincing anybody who isn't already with you to vote for you when you're at least seven points down, like you're just, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. So what do we think about this? The impact of this debate, the chaotic approach, the, the moment that being, that's being pulled out is his declining to condemn white supremacy. What do we think that means for people like Karen Handel in Georgia six or Rich McCormick in Georgia seven, or, or some of these Republicans trying to, hold on to swinging state house seats. Do y'all think that this weighs on any of those kinds of races at all, or, or just weighs on sort of the Republican brand generally that, that may convince a few more people to be like, no, I can't vote for any of these Republicans. I, I absolutely think it's going to weigh on, on both of these races. I was talking to a consultant today who is, uh, who is working, who is working on one of these races and was telling me that they've got polling and both showing Biden ahead by double digits um, in both of those districts. And to me, that debate just further put a nail in the coffin of, of, of educated suburban folks who are not going to be 
turning out for the president and they just can't vote for him. Um, I know that when I'm looking through 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 Vote Builder, through our our, our, our vote database right here, looking at, at different folks who and looking at their past performance, I've got a candidate who's a, a physician. And they, I'm looking at a lot of the people that are in the district of physicians, and so many physicians have been straight Republicans in every single primary, and then this this year they didn't vote in the Republican primary for the first time. And I think that they're going to see that that kind of, that kind of issue be true throughout suburbs suburbs all over Georgia and all over the United States. So I think when you see the sixth and the seventh, they're definitely going to be ones that are going to be affected by that. And I think all of these suburban seats that we have here in Atlanta that are, are getting ready to flip are, 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 are going to be helped by that as well. And then I saw the story in the AJC today where they talked about the flip seats that, that the Republicans lost last time and the Democrats are fighting to keep them. And I thought the headline was written extraordinarily backwards. No, Republic, it should be written, Republicans are fighting like heck to try to get back to the seats they lost, right? Not Democrats are trying to keep their seats. I don't think that's the real story. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's just, they're just doubling down on all the wrong things. And if there's ever a time for a smart Republican to start breaking away from Donald Trump, it would be now. And I've just been amazed that like no one is doing it because I mean, it'd be hard for David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler really, you know, here, cause they have just so bear hugged him in a way that is just embarrassing to, to both of them really. Cause I, I, I imagine they're both smarter than, than it, but for like your caring handles of the world or Rich McCormick who, uh, I don't think it's been elected before. Like it would be a lot easier for them to start creating significant distance. And I just don't think they're going to do it because no one wants to get tweeted out by Trump. But I mean, at this point, like with things being so bad with Biden being in public polls, even with Trump in some polls I've heard of like being above 50%, uh, in, you know, statewide. And I am sure like, they're smart people. They have a lot of money. I'm sure they're running polling and I'm sure even, you know, their internal polling that has a different view of what the electorate's going to be. Biden's being competitive to a place that would scare them. I would think they would think, Oh, maybe it's not a bad thing to get some distance from this president and act like I'm my own person. But you know, that, that is just not what the Republican party is right now. And I, I think to their detriment, luckily for for our clients uh josh that that you know they are uh sticking with him wholeheartedly so they're, yeah i don't they're, they're afraid to to cross the president in any way shape or form and and that's that's what it comes down to like you'll, you'll see i know in, in a lot of these state house races there's been this cookie cutter mail program going out where republicans are claiming credit for 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 helping you know uh solve uh maternal mortality and things like that and it's 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 crazy to see that, but they still won't say a word about Trump, right? And and that's that's where I think the difference lies. Like they don't they don't want to have that negative thing come back at them, even though a lot of them wish he would just go away. The one thing I feel like this approach that Trump took in the debate was particularly harmful to him in the Midwestern Rust Belt states that he needs to be able to hold on to. But the the one thing that he has going for him and that Republicans have going for them in Southern states that are more conservative and more religious is the uh, possibility of putting Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme court. And I will say the one thing I thought Trump in the first two minutes got off to an actually excellent start. And I initially I was actually a little worried about the way 
the direction the debate was going to take, because the first question that went to him was about uh, nominating Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and the timing of it, whether or not it was appropriate to do it so close to an election. And Luke and I talked about this on the last couple of shows. You know, Republicans have been like trying to like create themselves a little carve out in the supposed standard that they created in uh, 2016 when they declined to consider President Obama's nomination. And Donald Trump didn't do that at all. He gave a very clear explanation for why they were nominating Amy Coney Barrett for the court. He said, elections have consequences. We won the election. We have the Senate. We can do it, and we're going to do it. And, you know, I actually thought that that was impressive for how clear it was and was a strong signal to the voters who will get excited about having Amy Coney Barrett on the court to say to them, we are not playing games. We have the authority to do something that will achieve a policy goal that you want. We're going to do it and we're not going to apologize for it. That's obviously an issue that creates some problems with for him and Republicans with swing voters, but it has the opportunity to increase enthusiasm for him among evangelicals and in his base. What did y'all think of that approach of just claiming the power, saying they're going to do it as opposed to trying to hem and haw about this standard and, and maybe be a little shy about the, the power grab they're making in the last month of this race? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that would be such a better line, not only for Trump, but like for the whole Republican party to, to take on just because, and I've said this on the show before, but just so Josh can hear if, if all of you listen religiously to this program, which I hope you do, is that like the reason why I think Lindsey Graham's race is so close right now is that nobody, I mean, there is no voter out there who is like, you know what I really love in a politician? One who's full of bullshit and doesn't tell me the truth and is like has no values. The reason why like people like Jason Kander did well is because like people got a good vibe about him and knew they could trust him even if they disagreed with him and so even if you completely agree with a politician having someone just be completely full of bs is something that no voter likes and so the the thing that's so remarkable about trump is the fact he has no shame and i honestly think this is one of those few places where being shameless about it would have been better and you know the republicans would have been well served by just like adopting this argument because like trump doesn't care about the uh perceptive you know perceptions of the things he does he just wants to do them and so in that way him not trying to do this like you know, 3D chess of like, oh, the Biden rule, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, yeah, like that I think is a much better argument. And I, I agree with you, Kyle. It was one of his better moments. I would agree that that it was one of his better moments that he had in the debate and, and it did set the tone there. And, it, and, and it's one thing that Republicans tend to be better at than Democrats of like laying down something like that, just stating outright. We tend to be more uh, verbose and, and, and try to, you know, have a, equivocate about things like that um but I, I i still think that a lot of people have a problem with that because it what it, the, of the fairness of it right and if you look at the polling of what, what americans are saying right there the majority say that we should wait until after the election to select an expert supreme court justice 
And, you know, they could they could buy what they Republicans did back in 2016 because, yeah, we should wait till after the elections don't. That makes sense. And now they're doing it the other way. I think there's a there's there's there, politics is a lot of times about binary questions and fair and not fair kind of delineates all of those. And I think that this is one of those things where there are for a lot of folks, it is going to be a line in the sand. And I don't I think, yes, it helped him and like look more like he actually understood what he was talking about for a minute. But he soon disabused that. So any any benefit he got from that moment there of saying this is what we get, I don't think it has lasting effect. Well, and I think it has kind of limited utility, too, because it you know, he, he is clear about the power that he wants to secure for people who care about this a lot, but it necessarily brings a fight about abortion and the Affordable Care Act to the forefront of this debate, and you know, particularly on the ACA and the possibility that a Judge Barrett could be a vote uh, to find the law unconstitutional. I mean, it was interesting this week, Democrats in the U.S. Senate used some kind of procedural uh, mechanisms to set up a vote that was basically a proxy for whether or not senators would defend the ACA or not. And both uh, Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler voted against the ACA in that vote. And, you know, yes, maybe it is slightly better ground for the president to be talking about the Supreme Court nomination over COVID-19 but then the Supreme Court nomination fights fight brings you this question over whether or not millions of people will have their health care taken away in the middle of a pandemic. So it's like, you know, there just doesn't seem to be a sort of a foolproof option for the president to argue for himself. You know, it's a lot of bad options and, and he's taking uh, maybe the the least bad one, but it he just doesn't have anything that that is going to bring him widespread appeal in the last few weeks here. I mean, being a bad president and being incredibly divisive is a really hard thing to run on. Like, I mean, if you, uh, I mean, Trump has basically told us before that he is being divisive, right? Like on that, so on that front, he doesn't even argue with you. And, you know, of course he says he's the best president ever, except maybe Lincoln, which, you know, like obviously no one believes except maybe him. And it's just, I don't think there's anything he could do this late, you know, like I really feel like when he made that decision, when he heard about the coronavirus and how bad it was going to be, when he made the decision to play it down, he was done. Like there is no way for him to re- legitimately win this election. And then he called now, he Bob Woodward say, to tell him about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like, you know, like, but even just playing it down, like he, I honestly believe even if we did not have audio of him saying that. Like, I still feel like that decision is what has gogging him to the place where he's in because I mean, he basically just told one lie too many, right? Like he had gone away with saying lie after lie and, and gone. So, so gone away with so much. And he's just, he just finally told the lie that broke him. I think. Well, I think you're going to see a bunch of ads in the next few weeks that kind of tie the COVID stuff that you were just talking about, Luke, to the ACA because the you know COVID would be treated as a pre-existing condition, and I I I'm, I'm, I think that's what that vote the Senate was about was was setting us up to have those ads that we're going to see across the country start soon in all these legislative and and, uh, and Senate races. Yeah, and that was a point I thought Biden made well because he he did bring up the pre-existing condition. Uh, thing and you know though i I wish he'd done it immediately Hmm? i wish he'd done it immediately he did sort of him and haw a little bit about the standard first before turning 
to the ACA. I mean, I don't know how many people noticed it because it shortly after that was when everything went off the rails. But um, true, it, it is a point that I've heard him like making videos a lot, though. So it is one that I, I know they're coming back to just based off of watching them. And and the thing that I I find so fascinating, and I wish someone like smarter than me could like explain this to me. But the Republicans are in this very strange position, and this isn't just Trump. I mean, honestly, Trump is the the least person to do this, but. Basically, like I, I, you know, I'm in Georgia. I watch the TV in Georgia because I'm insane. And there's these, you know, Purdue ads, and I'm sure they're in like every state in the country where they're just like, you know, I'm David Purdue, and I support pre-existing conditions, uh, you know, and like they don't. And there's like a million votes of them not doing it, and they all are supporting getting rid of the ACA. And I just like I really wonder what they think is going to happen. Like if they are successful in getting rid of the ACA and people with pre-existing conditions are no longer covered, like what they're going to think, because at you know, because the argument is very easy because it's been being made for years. You know, first it was the argument of like the ACA is going to cover pre-existing conditions. Then it was the argument of if you get rid of the ACA. <laughs> We will no longer be able to cover pre-existing conditions. And then, at, you know, there's going to be this point if they are successful where the ACA is gone and pre-existing conditions are no longer covered. And I don't think voters are so stupid that they're going to be like, well, that's really weird how that happened. I wonder if that's connected or not. Well, and they got a preview of it in 2018, the preview of the backlash that would come to them at the congressional level because they lost a, a house that was gerrymandered to them by a few extra points. So... They know that this is not a good issue for them. I don't think they do. I, <laughs> Why would they keep running on it if they think it's not a good issue? Issue, you know, it's like there's issues that like we don't think are good issues for us, so we don't run on them. Like they keep running on this, and they keep. I mean, it's it's so bizarre because everything they do in office is actually against this. Like well, it's almost it's almost as if they were campaigning on raising taxes. Well, I think the problem with that is, 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 or the cause of that is the fact that they're not running for general election. Most of the time, they're running for primaries, right? And then the general right. elections are already been decided. So that's where that that comes in. I mean, just I mean that that to me says it all. I mean, that's that's yes, it's a long term solution, but the, like for long long term, it's bad for them. But the short term, I got to win this thing that tomorrow. That's all they're looking at. It's not that bad. And they've got to win that primary. They got to win that primary. That's all they had to worry about. And now, you know, the tide's changing and, and it's going to change how it works. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I guess the thing that, like, I'm so confused about is, you know, like, so many states have, like, trigger laws, right? For, like, if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, they can immediately just outlaw abortion. And, like, it would be very, very easy for them to just create a trigger law that's like, hey, we all agree pre-existing conditions are really important. We should always have them covered and just like write a like, you know, two sentence law that would handle that. And the fact that they haven't done that is what really confuses me because at that point we really would have like this wouldn't be an argument anymore. It would just be off the table and people would actually say like, yes, I do support it. Look at this bill I passed. And what this really makes me come to is, you know, we, we always say like Trump is saying the quiet part out loud and on this pre-existing condition front, Eric Erickson did exactly that the other day. Uh, he tweeted, quote, I don't think the government should force coverage for pre-existing conditions. I think it is bad public policy that will lead to increased healthcare costs and diminish the need for personal responsibility. In quote, 
yeah, that's a really interesting argument, Eric. Uh, I guess I should have just decided to not have ADHD. Good, good, good note there. Um, and, you know, it's just like, I don't know how many pre-existing conditions personal responsibility can help with, but if this is what other Republicans think, I really wonder when they're going to start saying that because at some point they're either going to have to put up or shut up about this issue. Well, and, and to get back to the point you made a few minutes ago about why don't they just vote on a bill that says they will protect pre-existing conditions, there's actually a policy reason that they can't do it because it, you know, that the healthcare system as it exists now is kind of like different pieces of a puzzle. And if you give uh, confirmation that you will make people insurable, even if they have pre-existing conditions, you need what basically amounts to all of the other pieces of the ACA to be able to meet that promise. Um, so I, you know, Purdue actually has a bill that he has sponsored that he purports to say will ensure that people with pre-existing conditions are protected and can access insurance. But that bill, as a policy matter, does not guarantee that that insurance would be affordable and would lead to to millions of people losing their coverage. Anyways, it's it's not that different of a place that you land than if you just toss the whole ACA in the garbage. Um, let's shift to Biden here and and talk a little bit about his performance in this debate and, and some of the choices that he made. I mean, you know, this conversation really sets up uh, the possibility that, that Biden will be the one getting to govern next year and that the governing choices that Biden makes are, are going to be important. And Biden sent a lot of signals about his governing choices in this debate. Uh, the president tried to pin on Joe Biden all of the positions held by the furthest le- left flank of the Democratic Party. Um, he tried to say that Biden would support a $100 trillion Green New Deal. I think that number is pulled out of thin air, but but maybe not. Um, that he supports Medicare for all, that he supports everything that Bernie Sanders ran on. And Biden pretty clearly said, you know, I am the Democratic Party. I won the primary. And the things that I say are the things that are, that are the positions of the Democratic Party. That was really a signal that he was not going to sort of fall into the trap that that Trump laid for him of of appearing beholden to progressives in the party. But he didn't do that on every issue. There were a couple of instances where he has declined to say whether or not he would support adding justices to the Supreme Court. And I believe he's declined to say whether or not he would support getting rid of the filibuster in the Senate, which would make a lot of these big widespread progressive proposals easier to pass in the Senate and easier to enact into law. What did y'all think about the choices that he made on policy and the, and the signal that he was sending that he is not a puppet for the left wing of the party, but keeping his options open on, on the kind of governing he would actually do. Josh, what'd you think of that? Um, I thought it looked like someone who was trying to win. I mean, that's, that's how I looked at it right there. I mean, Getting into the debate about expanding the Supreme Court doesn't do you a darn bit of good to win this election right now. And I am a wholeheartedly in favor of him doing it as soon as we get in there. I think that's what, you know, if we have to do that, that's what we have to do. But I think he's not letting that become the subject of what we're going to talk about. We've got issues that face us right now in front of us, like the pandemic, everything else. And getting into that is not a winning proposition. That's how I took it. Yeah, I, I I agree, and also, I I, I appreciated the um, Palpatine esque. I am the Democratic Party, um, 
because I mean he is, and I feel like this he is used to argument. be the Senate basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean he used to be the Senate. Now now he's the Democratic Party. But like jokes aside, like this is one of the most frustrating arguments that Trump makes that I feel like isn't working. I mean, really, none of the arguments Trump is making seem to be working. But this one, I, I was happy to see Biden like make this point because I know there are voters out there, like my mom's probably one of them, who's like really worried that like Biden's going to raise her taxes and really, you know, worry he's going to do a bunch of crazy things. And, you know, like the Democratic Party has a lot of members in it with a lot of different beliefs. And I just appreciate him not like hiding the ball about these things of like, I am the president, you know, I will be the president if I win. We're going to do, you know, I'm going to support the things I want to do and push for the things I want to do. And it's fine if my, uh, you know, friends and allies in the party have different beliefs and we can work this thing out. Because, you know, the one thing I really love to see is just how this didn't dissolve into a crappy, you know, left-wing uh, firing squad like we usually do because like immediately after the uh, debate like I saw a post from AOC being you know like someone like trying to like surprise her with the fact that Joe Biden doesn't support the Green New Deal and she's like yeah I know he doesn't that's why I'm on his climate panel trying to push him towards it and it's just like yeah it's like we all we're all on the same page this year which I really appreciate. Yeah, I really appreciate how the president also said that, you know, you've lost the left. Like, glad he's got such a good grasp on, on the electorate right there. Right. Well, and he sounded so defeated as if like when he levied this charge that Biden was just going to his knees were just going to buckle and he say, OK, fine, I support the Green New Deal. I support it all. You got me, Mr. President. And all he could say is he lost the left. Ugh. <laughs> What what's so fascinating about Trump's like uh, he lost he lost the left uh, comment is I think he was like you said Kyle like expecting him to say he supported the Green New Deal and you know just like come out as some socialist and he did seem genuinely surprised that he didn't take that path and just like came up with something to say in that moment. And like this trap that he was trying to set for Biden or is the exact same trap he fell into with the, the proud boys thing in the sense that like, there would be something if you did not deny it would hurt you really bad. And he expected Biden for some reason to like reverse his position, even though he said a million times, he doesn't support the green new deal. Whereas for Trump, like this, this opportunity he had to denounce white supremacy would have helped him tremendously and he just couldn't do it. And so it's just amazing that he tried to, you know, he set this trap for Biden that he ended up walking into himself. Well, it raises the question of does, does the Trump, does the base lead Trump or does Trump lead the base? Because Trump did have this reaction of like, man, I could never take that stand against my own people. They would never still love me. I mean, everything with him is projection. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about these, uh, the next steps here with what's going to happen with these next debates. And, and I should say it's, it's been a little bit since we've had Megan on the podcast, Megan, we miss you. We're excited to have you back soon. She did send some thoughts over to me about the debates today. And and one point that she made that I thought was interesting was she said she'd rather there wouldn't be the rest of the debates, this cycle at the presidential level. She said the, the VP debate is worth watching. And I do think that's actually going to be pretty good television. Um, but that she wasn't interested in there being more debates. What do y'all think about the uh, 
the the forthcoming debates here should should there be rules changes do we need something some sort of different format or something really different or you know Luke you said you liked this debate if the next two are a lot like this one does America get anything out of that yeah I think some rule changes would be good I think being able to mute the mic if someone is like being really really abusive of uh, those times. Cause I, I think people jumping in like for a moment is okay. But like when they're just completely abusing it, it's not. Um, but I mean, Trump has said that he won't come if they change the rules, which I say, okay, that's fine. Like give Joe Biden 90 minutes in a town hall to talk to people. Um, and I really think that would hurt him. And as other people smarter than me have pointed out, Donald Trump would just not let any other human being have that kind of a platform. So I think he'll show up no matter what. And I think if he tries this again in the town hall, it will not go well for him because if like Chris Wallace got mad at you based on your behavior, like real voters will demolish you. Uh, they will just not let him do it. I, I just, I just don't see them let him do it. The ty- ty- kind of people who end up being the question askers for those debates just are the type of people who don't have any time for that. Imagine um, him interrupting a voter and being like, you're fake news. You're the fake news media. <laughs> like, like you probably don't have do video it. of that. I think we probably have video of him doing exactly that, uh, Kyle. I mean, I think there's things out there where he said things to people like that. So I think it's there. Um, I was going to say, I, I, I don't, I don't agree I, I, I like the debate the way it was. I don't think we need to, I, I want to have more of these. I think we let Trump be Trump and, and, and that's what we need to let have, have happen. Uh, in terms of, of like turning off a mic or something like that, I don't know if that'll be necessarily effective because I think just like any any child, you take away something from them, like they're going to find another way to, to, to make more noise or make themselves like, you know, maybe boisterous. I think maybe taking away time from them might be an effective way because then that this kind of like they don't have anything there. But like I don't know if there is anything that's gonna be able to control him. And honestly, I would love the, the American people to see Trump be Trump. Yeah, and, and just to go to the VP debate, I, I do agree. I think that one will be good. I mean, Mike Pence is a good debater. He's not an honest debater, but he is a good debater. Um, and I, everyone talks about how good Kamala Harris is, and I, I think that is true. But I think like Pence will be a hard person for her to debate because she has been very successful in uh, Senate Judiciary Committees where she's fighting and engaging and debating with someone who is hot-headed, like both Bill Barr and Brett Kavanaugh, like are people who are kind of easy to dislike and easy to you know, feel like they're going to loggerheads. Whereas like Mike Pence's whole thing is like lulling you to sleep with his Reagan impersonation and trying to be very nice and friendly and, you know, uh, comforting. And like Kamala Harris is going to have a pretty tricky time as just about anybody would with engaging with him like that. Uh, it's, it's so funny. Cause like, I feel like Tim Kaine was actually like a really great person to debate Mike Pence because they had similar energy. I feel like, whereas Kamala's energy is very different in a, in a great way. And, but I think it will be an interesting match and I'm hoping that that will be a more productive conversation. And I mean, what I'd be really interested to see 
because Pence does try to do this sometimes is try to engage with like a less dumb version of Trumpism, uh, which I know is a little bit of an oxymoron, but I feel like he does try to do it. And I, I think that would be a worthy conversation of this moment uh, uh, of him to try to do that. Yeah. I think the, the fight over the Supreme court seat, I think takes center stage in that debate because probably the most compelling messenger for the uh, anti-abortion put a social conservative on the Supreme Court. The most compelling messenger for that from the Trump administration is actually probably Mike Pence. And Kamala Harris will also be a a headline player in that, given her role on the Judiciary Committee. And I can't remember. I believe the debate will, the VP debate will become, the VP debate will come before Amy Coney Barrett's hearings begin in Senate Judiciary. Um, so I think you're likely to see a preview in that debate of of the battle lines drawn over Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. And I got to disagree with Luke a little bit. I, I think that her experience as a prosecutor and the way that we we saw her perform during, during the, the primaries, I think that she is going to be able to do well no matter who she's up against. I oh think, yeah, no, yeah. I have a lot of faith in her. It's just it's it's a trickier thing, I guess. I think Pence will, in some ways, sort of play the victim. Maybe like he is representative of you know social conservative being the victim in our culture, and sort of portray Harris as this like overly aggressive questioner and being disrespectful of people's values. Like if that you know, knowing Pence and, and knowing the the place that he'll occupy in this debate, I, I would imagine that's sort of the approach is to you know, to maybe sort of frame Kamala as being too mean. Let me ask you this. Do you guys think there's any possibility that that Pence seeing the writing on the wall does anything in his debate for self-preservation? <laughs> what what could he do? I don't that's a great question. So, I yeah, I mean, that is, I, I think that is an excellent question. And the thing I've been so fascinated by uh, reading Bob Woodward's uh, rage um, is, is when Pence pops up because a, a big part of the early part of that book, and I, I will say I've not finished it yet because life's crazy, but uh, I, I'm about halfway through. And like Dan Coates is, is in a lot of the beginning of it and him and Mike Pence go way back and they have a great, you know, very close relationship. And the thing that Dan Coates is like always saying or is being attributed to Dan Coates or people around Dan Coates is, is always, you know, being saying in Bob Woodward reporting is that mike pence is always saying stay the course basically and like that you know it's like we're doing this for bigger reasons and like that you know of course he doesn't like any of it but like he has that bigger picture in mind and so like really the question in my mind towards your question josh is like when mike pence is saying stay the course to himself is donald trump still part of that course or not because if he's not then i think he very well might say some self-preservation things in there and create some distance between himself and the president because he wants to run in four years. And I think that will be very fascinating to see. And I think that will really, honestly, like that question alone will determine a lot of how that debate goes. Because if he is just the loyal handmaiden for Donald Trump, then like it's going to be a really strange debate but if Mike Pence tries to create some distance uh, from from the president, that that could take it into a very, very different place. I think if you could say 
Joe Biden's primary strategy was to say noun, verb, and my friend Barack Obama. I feel like Mike <laughs> Pence's uh, similar strategy would be to say my friend Nikki Haley and all those great times we had being Republican governors together. <laughs> Josh, any closing thoughts on on what you saw on Tuesday night or, or what you're looking for either in the presidential race or in any of the down ballot races that you're working on or paying attention to as we we come up on the final month here? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at all kinds of things and I'm, I'm while the, the presidential race is important to all of our lives, my life is mostly focused on the state house and stuff like that here in Georgia. Um, I, I will say that I think the biggest takeaway from the debate that wasn't actually the debate itself has been the commentary that happened uh, immediately after the debate, whether you were on Fox News, on CNN or MSNBC, I tried to flip between all three to see what they were saying after the debate. There, there, there was almost this tonal and, and attitudinal change where everything moved towards, well, the race is over kind of like mentality or, or like some kind of like, you know, underlying current of like, you know, this, oh, that was, that was the death knell or something like that right there. Like that, they had already thought that things were going one way and that this, this was basically where it is. I know, you know, the folks, the news organizations have all kinds of polling that we don't have access to and hear all kinds of things like that. And I just wonder, like, it was just, it just seemed to happen like, Two days beforehand, people were talking about his Trump surge. He was moving up in the polls. And then the debate happened. And then it was just all like, okay, well, how is this going to affect everyone down ballot now? Like, that's kind of like the mood change. I thought that was the most remarkable thing that I've seen um, as a politico since the debate. Yeah. And just because we haven't explicitly said it, because I agree entirely. The other remarkable thing is just like how very clearly people said Trump lost this debate. Like that, that is it. Like, there's been a lot of scientific polling done uh, post debate, and pretty much all of them have said that he lost it. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see because Trump is so hungry for feedback, and he he prefers positive feedback. He'll take negative if that's all he can get, but he prefers positive. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he he changes um anything in response to that. And just just to point out. <laughs> I'm so frustrated with all these like, oh, Trump is coming back. He's he's going to win this thing, like narrative that like some people in the media are so desperate to make a thing because it's just like this race has been Trump is seven points behind like since January. And I, I, I just wish that like people would give it a week before they like go on this one poll and say like, yep, Trump's winning now because this one poll said he's doing better. He was, he's five down instead of seven. So he's going to win. I mean, I had Democratic friends who right, at, right after the debate said, oh, God, Trump, you know, Trump, Trump, that Trump's going to win because they saw that as him being strong. And those same friends, you know, a day later are, are acting a little differently now. Yeah, I will believe that Trump has turned the tides in this race and has a chance to make it competitive when I stop seeing polls of South Carolina that have Trump and Biden tied. Yeah, <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> Yeah, like at this point, like Biden might win Alaska. <laughs> so, like you, you know, like that's when you're not doing well as a Republican. Well, both or, of the both of the Alaska senators sided with Democrats on that ACA vote today. I mean, and he's at tied least in South Carolina. Politics. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, we will. Uh, Leave it there. We got a lot more coming your way. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Come back and join us anytime. Oh, no problem. I like this. And Luke, thank you as always. 
Yes, thank you. Uh, We will talk to you guys again soon. Bye. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.